0: Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And for this, I am grateful, and I'm grateful for each one of you who is here today. Something I was thinking as we were reading, a little behind the scenes. Um, The pastors at Urban Village, we are a church that lives in four places across the city, um, and we have multiple pastors. We take turns putting together the sermon series guides and picking the scriptures, and we all pick the themes together. And you can always tell... um, Emily McGinley at Hyde Park Woodlawns will always start with a letter of Paul. Chris at South Loops will always end with a really classic Jesus story, like Fish on the Beach or like one of those good ones. And then Aaron and Mines will always be half Hebrew Bible, like very hard texts that drive you a little bit bananas. And so this was an Emily one and one that I am grateful to be given from her. Um, She has this beautiful relationship to the text of Romans And Romans is one of the most, I think, beautiful texts in the New Testament. It's gorgeous. It has so much. But it's also one of the most frequently misused. Y'all may have heard it a couple weeks ago, be misused in its 13th chapter um, to justify all things that a government ever does are good and for God. We're pretty sure since the government killed Jesus that that's not how it works. Um, You also will have heard this one, the eighth chapter, be misused, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the ways in which the Bible can be used and misused and misquoted to lead us a little bit astray, to lead us a little bit far away from where we want to be. We're talking not about what the Bible does tell us, although we'll get there, but most especially about what the Bible doesn't tell us. This month is the Bible does not tell us so. Ways the Bible has been misquoted over time that you may have heard as a kid. So to start things off, I'm going to give you a little pop quiz. So get excited. There are absolutely no consequences to being wrong, so don't be nervous. But we're going to go through a quiz together. I'm going to bring up the first question. God helps those who help themselves. In the Bible? Not in the Bible. Holler out. People are convinced. Nah, let's see. Good job, guys. Uh, this was popularized by Ben Franklin, who did not write the Bible. Good job. All right. Let's go to number two. You shall have no other gods before me. In the Bible, not in the Bible. Good job, guys. Bible, not into idolatry. Let's see. Good job. It's from Deuteronomy 5 and also many, many other places throughout the Bible. This is a, this is a theme. All right. Number three. For the wages of sin is death. In the Bible, not in the Bible. Yes. Yes. Okay, let's see. Good job, Romans 6, just a couple of chapters before this one. All right. That's one where I would say interpretation matters though. So, alright, let's go to the next question. God don't like ugly. In the Bible? Not in the Bible. Okay. Correct, not in the Bible. But this is a good example of one that um, just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not useful to say, right? Doesn't mean it's not sort of a useful idea. Don't act ugly towards one another. Don't be mean towards one another. Something isn't not true just because it's not in the Bible. This one just isn't in the Bible. All right, let's try the next one. God created human beings in God's own image. In the Bible? Not at yeah. Very good. It's how we start things off. Genesis 1. Um, One of the interesting debates here, in this verse, it does say something like God in his own or God's own image. There are other places where that phrase is their own image, as if God is plural, which I find very intriguing. So again, dig deep in the layers. All right, next question. Spare the rod, spoil the child. In the Bible, not in the Bible. So, trick. It's a trick. So, Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Proverbs 13 does read, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So close. But the word rod does not refer to rod stick. It refers to rod shepherd's crook. So the rod is one by which we lead. It's the sign of one who is a leader. It wasn't something that was used to beat or to harm or to hurt. Um, which is often how this phrase is used, right? Is that child abuse is fine. Um, so that's not what it means in the first scripture. And then this particular phrasing, spare the rod, spoil the child, this particular sort of perversion of the Proverbs, comes from a poem by Samuel Butler. So let's go to the next one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. In the Bible, not in the Bible. Yes, I, I would be in so much trouble <laughs> if this were. True. Let's go. Not in the Bible. Although, John Wesley, who we talked about a lot in July because he founded United Methodism, is the way that this phrase got really popular. He really believed in cleanliness, order, and discipline as means of grace and ways that we would get to know God. And he's frankly not wrong, right? My, My messiness can draw me away from God as much as it does anything else. But luckily for me, cleanliness is not next to godliness. All right, let's go to the next one. I can do everything through the one who gives me strength. In the Bible? Not in the Bible. Yes. This is from Philippians. Yes, go to the answer. Give me... Yeah, Philippians 4.13. This is one of the most quoted verses of the Bible. If you look in any, if any of you have an online Bible app, or if you have one of those things that helps you make, like, the pretty verse squares that go really nicely on Instagram, you know, one of those things, this is always one of the top three most highlighted verses, most quoted verses, most underlined verses. And it is beautiful, and it can get us through a lot. Has anyone ever, this is in the Bible, but has anyone ever heard it used in a way that seems not necessarily useful, right? Yes. So just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that somebody quoting it is quoting it in a way that is towards life, towards health, towards godliness either, right? So just because something's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean the way that it's quoted is useful or healthful. All right, now we got one more. All things work together for good. In the Bible, not in the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Liz is, Liz is. Ah. you just heard it read, basically, right? So it's from Romans 8. Uh, God works all things together for good. That kind of actor is sort of important. But yes, this is in there. But what it means is what we're going to talk about today. What we can take that as and what we can't take that as. What that means for our lives, what it doesn't mean for our lives. That's the topic because today... Each Sunday this month, as we talk about what the Bible doesn't tell us, common ways of sort of twisting or misinterpreting, even with affection and love, today we're talking about God does everything for a reason. God does everything for a reason. Anybody ever had that said to you, God does everything for a reason? Um, Have you ever had that feel helpful to you? No, never. I thought we'd have a couple. Okay, we do have a couple. We have a couple nods. Yes, that has felt helpful to me. Anybody ever had that feel not helpful to you, or kind of sad or yeah? So, so we're gonna we're gonna get to it. What is useful? What? Why do some people say this about God? Does everything for a reason? And what's missing? What's not quite complete? What's not quite there? But before we get there, I want to talk about why this happens so often. As we went through this quiz, we kind of saw right. Um, There's lots of things that people think are in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. Part of that is we live in a culture that's been really impacted by sort of Christian history, Christian state relationships, And so some people think anything that I hear a lot must be in the Bible. There's another funny quiz along this line. There are actually 10 more questions on this one. We're going to put it on Facebook. So if you want to take it, you can. But there's another similar one. Um, Is it Bible or is it Shakespeare? (laughs) That's just things that people quote a lot and you have to try and figure out which one it is and it's almost impossible. Um, And... uh, People say things, they receive them as wisdom, they receive receive them as useful, they think they're good things to say, and so then they say them so much, it becomes received wisdom, sort of a proverb, a saying, and then people start to assume that it's biblical. And like I said, just because something's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's worthless. There are smart things that people say that aren't in there. But some of the things that people say are in the Bible but aren't in there, I think can harm and can cause damage. And so it's important to be clear about what we're saying when we're saying things. It's important to be clear about where things come from, to be clear about what the consequence of them is. There are a couple ways that ideas get into our head about what the Bible says and does and is that aren't correct. A couple different ways. And I want to go through them because they're going to be relevant all month long. And the first one is removing things from their context. It's not actually when things aren't in the Bible at all. It's when they are in the Bible, but we don't pay attention to everything they're surrounded by. This is actually the most common way I find people sort of making claims about what the Bible is about, that it's not, is that they remove all context. Which brings me to, some of you have seen my favorite rant, my biggest bane of my existence, uh, Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Can we bring this up? Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Anybody seen this in the grocery store? Ezekiel 4-9 bread. So, Ezekiel 4-9 bread. The bread itself is fine. You have not been harmed if you have eaten Ezekiel 4-9 bread. It's tasty. It uses grains. Good job, Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Whole grains are good for you. Here's what drives me bananas every time I see Ezekiel 4-9 bread is that it is, to me, an avatar of the kinds of biblical illiteracy that are, like, harming our world. Um, Because the reason it's called Ezekiel 4-9 bread is that if you open your Bible, if you open your app to Ezekiel 4.9, sure enough, it will be a list of ingredients that can make bread. That's in there. It will be a grain and another grain and a thing. Open to Ezekiel 4.9, they're telling the truth. It's in there. Here's what happens. If you read until Ezekiel 4, 10, 11, 12, mere words away, a dozen words away, you discover that the recipe for Ezekiel 4-9 bread is not just those grains and delicious ingredients that go into this bread. It is those grains and delicious ingredients which are supposed to be baked over a pile of human poop and eaten while you lie on your side for a year and a month as punishment for the sins of your people. (laughs) It is sin, punishment, poop bread, (laughs) not healthy, make your body awesome bread. (laughs) And so every time I see it in the grocery store, I think, oh, Ezekiel 4.9. Uh, is it true to the rest of the chapter 4 of Ezekiel? Because if so, I don't want to eat it, <laughs> and nobody should want to eat it. We have this strange idea that because words are present in the Bible, they are a recommendation for how to live our life, as opposed to part of stories <laughs> that are bigger and longer and have context and content that matters to how we interpret them. Just because a set of ten words is in the Bible doesn't mean that's a direction for how to live your life. you got to read the verse before, you got to read the verse after, and maybe even a couple more than that, and figure out what's really trying to be said here. So this is a a fairly innocuous, if you love the bread, keep eating it, but it's just silly (laughs) to me, Um, a fairly innocuous, but I think really good example of something we we do over and over and over again, which is that we take a couple of things and we say that they're about a whole way to live your life, a whole way you have to be or everything's gone wrong, um, that takes things away from the broader message of who God is and God's love and God's justice and tries to simplify things to a couple of easy directions Um, that we are, in fact, quite likely to get wrong. So, there's my rant. But there's another way that we get things wrong, which is that things that feel pretty true to people, that feel true to their experience of life and true to things that they've read in the Bible, even if they're not quite there, um, they say are there because it's true to their spiritual experience. And then... We start to get lost from the consequences of the things that we're saying and of the messages that we're putting out into the world. And that's what brings me to um, God does everything for a reason. Because here's what I think uh, about what happens with God does everything for a reason. I don't think anyone has ever said that without good intention. I don't think anyone has ever said that meaning to harm or to hurt. I think most people including me, people in my family who have said that, have said it wanting to help and to um, see the ways in which we're never stuck in just one part of life, no matter how hard it may be. People say God does everything for a reason when they have a sense in their heart that they can look back on their life and see moments that felt so bad and so hard and so awful... But they got through it, and it made them who they are today, and they feel like they see God in that process, right? And so they want to offer as comfort to other people, God does everything for a reason. Whatever you're going through, it's going to be okay. That intention, I think, is beautiful and lovely, and there's God to be found in it. But the problem is that it's not true, it's not true that every single thing that ever happens is a thing that God forced to happen with intention because God thinks it's a good thing. If that were true, the word injustice would have no place in the Bible, and it has a place there. <laughs> if that were true, the words sin and harm and pain would have no place in the Bible, and they have a place there. The problem with saying it this way, God does everything for a reason, is that no matter how good the intent, what we receive is that whatever pain and suffering we are going through, whatever injustice we or others have experienced, is some kind of test God gave us on purpose. Some kind of tweak or prod or you can handle it God gave us on purpose. And I think that can lead to really death-dealing thoughts about who God is and how God feels about us and how God interacts with us. That's the danger. That's the danger of putting it this way. God does everything for a reason. This is a a difficult situation and not one that everyone will find themselves in, Um, but there's something I think about a lot whenever I think about the things we say to people who have experienced loss or grief or pain or challenge. Um, And this story is going to involve sexual assault, um, and so if that's challenging for you for any reason at all, you're welcome to walk out, cover your ears, whatever you need to do, Um, When I was in college, I got a job uh, being a medical advocate for sexual assault survivors in the state of Illinois, Um, which means that when uh, someone came to an emergency room and reported that they had experienced assault, uh, I would go and I was this person who had been trained in what the law was and what the medicine was and um, how to support survivors. And I wasn't affiliated with the police and I wasn't affiliated with the hospital and the only goal I was supposed to have was to be to support this person. And so I would do that several times a year, um, and it was a a profound and challenging experience to realize the level of violence that was happening in our community all the time that we don't talk about for one thing, Um, but also to realize the, the barrenness and the paucity of so many of the things that people just say automatically to someone who's in pain, trying to help. Because I would go time after time and see these people, women, men, young, old, in every kind of situation, and see doctors and nurses and the people who loved them try to be there for them and say things like this. It'll be okay. God does everything for a reason. And I think in that kind of context, when someone has experienced that kind of violence, which they can never be held accountable for and which God would never send to anyone, that's an obscene thing to say. It's an obscene and an evil and a damaging thing to say. And and if in that experience and in that life we can see the damage that saying that would cause, right? The way in which it paints a picture of a God who thinks it's okay that this happened to you, who wants this to happen to you, which is not the God I know and not a God I would ever serve or worship. I think in that context, seeing how wrong it is to say to someone in that situation we can understand why it's no more right to say it to any kind of loss or pain or grief or sadness. It's just not right to tell somebody when they're in the middle of a hard situation that they need to get over it, right, which is what is heard, even if it's not what is said, because whatever has been sent to you, God wanted it to happen to you. It's not true of the world we live in. All kinds of things happen to us and happen to people that are bad, that are evil, that God doesn't want to happen to us. And these aren't the kinds of ways we can be caring for each other because they aren't care. And so I I knew that we couldn't say that to each other anymore. And I, frankly, for a long time had zero patience for this phrase, could not do it. And then I started serving this church church. It was a beautiful church with beautiful people, not this one, um, where there were a couple of folks who would say this to me all the time, Um, and they were folks who had been through, like, just objectively much, much more challenging circumstances than I had ever been through in my life. I think particularly of one older gentleman in that congregation who um, had been like politically persecuted in his home country, had lived through poverty, had immigrated from one country to another, um, had just experienced, had been through war um, and had just been through a, a lot of, Um, these kinds of pains, these kinds of unwarranted and unwanted pains and sufferings. And he would say to me, um, whenever the mildest thing went wrong in the church, God does all things for a reason. God is in control. And it was clear to me that there was some gift that that offered to him, right? There was some gift that that offered to him. And it was a sense that for all that he had been through, God was still a source of good and joy, and hope in the world, there was something bigger, and that for all he had been through, he had always been pulled out of it. There had always been a next step, a next road, a next something, and he was telling me the truth when he said that, right, that he had this experience that the world is bigger and God is bigger than any moment of pain and suffering that we experience, and he was trying to communicate that to me, and I think he also had a sense um, that there's a greater wisdom at work, a greater power at work than we can ever see in any particular moment. And when I heard him say those things, those always felt really true to me. And so I began to learn to appreciate what I think he was trying to communicate to me when he said, God does everything for a reason. But I still don't think that that phrase is the truth of what's happening. Phrase isn't the truth of what's happening. It's not the truth of that experience he had of joy and love sustaining even through pain. And that's why I love this Romans, because I think this Romans 8 is the truth of what he was experiencing. If we're not going to say God does everything for a reason anymore, what is true about who God is? And I think Romans 8 has it. (laughs) Romans 8 has it. And I want to say, just in case you don't know this about the book of Romans, um, Paul is writing to people who are experiencing and are going to experience more suffering. (laughs) This is one of the main things he's thinking about as he's trying to get on board with them. Suffering and difference are the two things he's thinking about as he's writing Romans. Because the, the community of Christians in Rome are under persecution, but also they're a real mix of people who were previously Jewish and people who were previously Gentile, which means like different Practices, different ways of eating, different cultural backgrounds, different experiences, and they keep kind of, um, as so often happens when we're living in a hard situation, poking at each other <laughs> instead of the larger harm, um, and they're they're being harmful to each other. And Paul is trying to sort of teach them about what unifies them, what brings them together, but also teach them how to live through the suffering that he really thinks they might continue to experience. He doesn't see an end on the end the way, and he begins with this this beautiful thing we read. Um, about the whole creation groaning in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. That he talks about creation as this mother in labor, about God as this mother in labor. And if anyone's told you there's no feminine in the divine, there's all kinds of this throughout the Bible. This laboring God, this nursing God, um, and. And he talks about creation as something that always brings forward new things, beautiful things, extraordinary things, but in the middle of that creation is painful. <laughs> is painful. And I think he's trying to reach people where they're at in this experience of life that we all share, which is that good and beautiful and gorgeous things happen all the time, and a lot of life is painful and confusing, and we don't know what happens next. He's bringing people into a vision of what it means to be alive and what it means to be a part of God's creation. And he doesn't say, this pain, this bondage that we're going through um, is totally worth it and fine, and God gave it to us. He says, it's one of the things that we are enduring. This is simply the reality of our situation. And says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness when we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the spirit itself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He acknowledges this state of suffering that all of us experience at some point throughout our lives. When something doesn't go well or when we're in our existential crisis or when we don't know what comes next. That for all of us comes a time when we don't know what to do and we don't know what to do so much we don't even know what to pray for. And that's when the spirit enters in with wordless groans and advocates for us and with us. And the one who searches our our hearts knows those groans of the Spirit because the Spirit is with us, with God and for God. That doesn't sound to me like a God who is sending us our sufferings in order to test us or because God knows we can get through it. That sounds to me like a God who is in it with us, (laughs) wordlessly groaning right alongside us, next to us, experiencing that the world sometimes offers up things that are not of the kingdom, not of God, not of joy and justice, and God will be with us to get through those days. And at the end is when he says this thing that is so true to me about who God is, which is that God works all things together for good. God works all things together for good. And in that is not, not, and this is where we get confused. I think this is exactly where God does everything for a reason comes from. It is not God made everything happen and it was good immediately. (laughs) If it was, the word work wouldn't be in there, right? There wouldn't be a verb. If everything was naturally, automatically, and already fine, then work wouldn't be in there. But God works all things together for the good. Whatever happens to you, no matter how challenging, no matter how sad, no matter how difficult, no matter how um, undeserved or unjust or challenging, God can work towards good from that place. God can work towards life from that place. God can bring something new out of that experience that is not that experience and that does not justify or dismiss that experience. That is who God is. Not a God who does everything for a reason, but a God who makes all things work towards the good. And that distinction can sound small, but to me, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing about who God is and what God wants for us. And that distinction is also The fight that we've been having as Christians for thousands of years, this difference, does God do everything for a reason or does God work all things together for the good no matter what they are, is the central fight we have been having about what the resurrection means. Because there are those who think what the resurrection means is God made a person, a son, a part of God's own self to go to the earth in order to die because God demanded blood. That's one way of telling the story. But there's another way of telling the story, which is that God sent God's self to earth because God in God's wordless groans of the spirit knew our suffering and decided to join us in them, decided to live in it with us, to live in bodies and weirdness and difficulty and joy and all of the things of life, to join in it with us, to share our life, to teach us what life could be, And we, in our fear and our violence and our own pain, responded to that by killing him. And God said, even that cannot stop me from loving you and cannot stop me from working all things towards the good. No matter how bad things get, no matter how harmful, nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop me from working things towards the kingdom of love and good and justice that Jesus has announced, and nothing can stop me from loving you. It's a small distinction, but it's a really, really important one for how we're going to live and who we're going to be and who we think God is and what God wants from us. God is not a person who has sent us to a test after test after test kind of life to see what we can take. God is a God who made us good, who loved us good, and who when we, in our freedom, in the chaos of the world, experience pain and suffering, suffers with us, loving us even through what we experience, and convicting us that our suffering, like Jesus's, can never and will never be the last word of what creation has to offer us. The bad things weren't sent to us from God, but none of them are immune to the power of God's ability to bring greatness and joy and resurrection out of things that at first look and feel like death. None of us have been abandoned. We are with a God who loves us through all and who has never met a challenge that God could not love us through. So I hope the next time you're with someone in grief and loss or the next time you experience it yourself, You don't say that God does everything for a reason, and I hope you don't hear it too. But I hope you do remember. I hope you do remember that there is nothing God can't make something good out of. There is nothing God can't draw new life out of. And that we have all been invited into that new and wondrous and extraordinary life together. Amen?